So take a few moments to remember, refresh the altruistic intention, the bodhicitta motivation you generated earlier today and make that your motivation for participating in this class. So we're now looking at the second of the four schools of philosophy, the tenet systems, and it's called the Sotrantika or Sutra school. It's Hinayana school. And last week, one of the things we looked at was their explanation of the two truths, ultimate truths and conventional truths. So let's do some meditation just to get a better understanding of how they explain the two truths. So they say that an ultimate truth is a phenomenon that can perform a function ultimately. And all impermanent things are ultimate truths. They can all perform functions ultimately. So let's just take an example, a table. We have, we have lots of tables here in this room right in front of us. So a table is an impermanent phenomena and it's an ultimate truth according to this school. It can perform functions. One function is that it provides a place where we can put our books, our computer, a cup of tea, and so on. It also functions to produce its next moment in a continuum. So the table is impermanent, which means it's changing moment by moment, all the parts down to the tiniest particles arise and cease each moment. So each moment of the table produces the next moment of the table. And in that way, it stays as a table, continues to exist in a, in a sort of continuum of impermanent moments. And if we take the table apart, let's say it's, it's a wooden table, and so it's made of pieces of wood. So if we take it apart and we have pieces of wood, so those pieces of wood also can perform functions. They could be used to build something else, or they could be used to make a fire if we're really cold. And they also perform the function of producing the next moment, maintaining the continuum <coughs> of the pieces of wood.
And if we break those pieces of wood down further into slivers and into molecules, atoms, and subatomic particles, eventually the tiniest particle of matter that can't be divided any further And even those extremely tiny particles that are so small we can't even see them, but they perform functions too. They perform the function of producing the next moment of each. And those very tiny particles can also come together with other particles and thus form larger objects. So because the table, as well as its parts, down to the tiniest particles, because these perform functions, then they are ultimate truths. Mind is also an ultimate truth. It's an impermanent phenomena, changing moment by moment. Each moment of mind giving rise to the next moment of mind. So mind too is an ultimate truth. It performs functions. For example, we can use our mind to learn the Dharma and practice the Dharma, create the causes for good rebirths, liberation, enlightenment. We can also use our mind to plan projects and carry them out. So according to this school, the Sutra school, all impermanent phenomena, material things, physical things, and minds, and also abstract composites like persons and time and so on, all of these are ultimate truths. They perform functions, at the very least, the function of producing the next moment. And then conventional truths, according to this school, are permanent phenomena. Permanent phenomena do not change moment by moment. They are not able to produce any results they cannot perform functions, so they are conventional truths.
An example is non-compounded space, just the mere absence of obstructive contact. We heard earlier that the Vaibhashika school says that space performs a function. It allows for movement. But this school, Satantika school, and the other Buddhist schools don't agree with that. They say space itself doesn't perform a function, even though it allows movement and moving things from one place to another. But it's not the space itself that performs that function. So permanent phenomena are not able to perform functions. And also, according to this school, permanent phenomena can't appear to direct perception. We can't see them or hear them or know them with any of our senses, directly, nakedly. They, they can only be known by conception, by thought. So I think that just because they say that permanent phenomena are conventional truths and not ultimate truths, I don't think that means they are not valuable. They're not important because, for example, selflessness is a permanent phenomena and selflessness is a very important object that we need to know, to understand, to realize in order to free ourselves from suffering, from samsara. So that's a very important uh, phenomenon. And also true cessations, the uh, cessation of afflictions or a portion of afflictions such that they will never arise again. So a true cessation is also a permanent phenomena. And that's a very important phenomena. That's something we need to achieve um, to be able to get out of samsara. And nirvana, nirvana is like the ultimate true cessation. That's when all the afflictions have been completely eliminated and will never arise again. And that's, that's a permanent phenomena. So I don't think they're devaluing permanent phenomena. It seems that the way they are um, dividing the two truths um, is more in terms of how they're known, what kind of mind is able to know conventional truths as opposed to ultimate truths. Um, so ultimate truths are known by direct perception, whereas conventional truths are known only by conceptions. And that's what we're going to be looking at today, um, the way that this school explains minds and different divisions of minds. So we're up to point five in the outline, which is the mode of asserting object possessors. And if you remember last time when we looked at the Vabashika school, an object possessor can be 
a person as well as a mind and also terms or names are also object possessors. So, um, so this, the first type of object possessor mentioned here is the person. So each school has their own way of uh, pointing to what is the person, the illustration of the person. So there's two types of Sotrantikas uh, following re scripture and following reason. So the Sotrantikas that follow scripture, they're, they're the ones who are like the Vibhashikas. So they say that the person is the continuum of aggregates. I, I'm not completely sure what they mean by that. I'll try to look it up and <laughs> give you an mm -hmm. answer next time if I can find something. But anyway, some of the Vibhashika schools said that as well, the continuum of the aggregates. And then the other Satrantikas, the, the, the ones who follow reasoning, they say it's the mental consciousness. Um, and Geshe Zopa and his commentary in Cutting Through Appearances say that it's not just any mental consciousness, but a subtle, neutral type of mental consciousness that exists continuously, even during sleep, and also during meditative aquapoise, deep meditation, and also from life to life. Okay, so some of our mental consciousnesses that we have during our life, like our thoughts and so on, those are, that's, I don't think, what they mean by the person, but a subtle, continuously flowing uh, type of mental consciousness is the person. And I think that the significance of pointing out what is the person is to account for karma because we say that a person creates an action, does an action, creates the karma, and then experiences the result. That's one of the characteristics of karma. You, you, know, you, you reap what you sow, as they say in the Bible, um, and this can go from life to life. So there has to be something that connects the person who does the action in the first place, creates the karma, and then experiences the result sometime in the future, which could be many lifetimes or uh, thousands of years, millions of years. So to account for that connection between the creation of an action and the experiencing of the result, then you have to point to something as the person. Okay, so then the main type of object possessor is mind or consciousness. And in Tibetan, and I suppose in Sanskrit as well, there's many different terms for mind, and some of them are synonymous, and some of them just refer to one type of mind, but not another type of mind. It's quite a complex um, topic. Um, but mind and consciousness are usually synonymous, interchangeable. So the definition of mind, and this I think is uh, agreed on by all the schools. So. Um, much of what Sutrantika, the Sutra school, says is accepted by the other schools, at least higher schools, like the Mahayana schools. 
And so that, that's why in the monasteries, they study a lot of texts based on the Satrantika explanation of things. So the definition of mind is that which is clear and knowing. And the word clear um, can have different meanings. One meaning, um, like in Geshe Rapton's book on mind and mental factors, he says it just means it's not material, it's not physical, not made of atoms, particles. It doesn't have color or shape, form, or material dimension. So it doesn't have any of the physical properties that physical things have. So that's one meaning of clear. Another meaning from Alex Burson, um, uh, the term for, for clear is cell, and it also has the sense of giving rise to. So how that applies to mind is mind always gives rise to something, its object, and is clear about it or makes it clear. Mm. And mind is also said to be somewhat like a mirror in that it takes on an aspect or a reflection of whatever object it's apprehending. Mm. So when we look at a flower, I don't completely understand how this works, but they say the mind will take on an aspect of the flower. It like arises in the aspect of the flower or blue, the color blue or whatever it's, it's um, perceiving, whatever it's apprehending. The mind kind of similar to the way a mirror takes on the image of whatever's in front of it mind also takes on an aspect of whatever object it's perceiving. I've always found that kind of mysterious, but that's what they say. <laughs> so that's different ways you can explain the term clear. And then the other term knowing, um, mind always has an object. You can never have mind without an object. So there's always an object and mind knows its object. And know could also be um, understood as experiencing or just being aware of or engaging with. But know, because the word know in English um, usually has the connotation of understanding. And Alex Burzen points out that mind doesn't have to understand its object. The word know doesn't mean the mind always understands its object because you know we sometimes see something that we've never seen before we don't know what it is but we still see it there's still some kind of knowing or awareness of that object even if you know it's like we don't know what it is <laughs> a flying saucer a ufo <laughs> a new kind of bird we've never seen before or whatever um so knowing here simply means awareness you know it's aware of the object. And also, um, mind doesn't even have to be fully conscious because there's, a, there's mind when we're asleep. You know, in English we say the person is unconscious. <laughs> but according to Buddhism, no, that's not completely true because 
there is consciousness there, even when a person is asleep or in a coma, um, you know, under, what do you call it, anesthesia. <laughs> Mind is still there experiencing something. Um, yeah, so it isn't necessary for mind to always be fully conscious or awake. So mind, according to Buddhism, is constantly there. Day and night, 24-7, every minute, every second. It never stops, it never ceases. It's always there, always experiencing something. And it can even experience multiple things at the same time. <laughs> So it's an amazing thing. Okay, mm -hmm. so then um, one way of dividing mind. There's different ways of dividing mind, but here uh, there's a twofold division into valid cognizers and non-valid cognizers. And cognizer is another term for mind, so don't get thrown by all these different terms. Just you could think valid minds and non-valid minds if you want. They're just just different kinds of minds, different kinds of awarenesses. Um, and before we carry on and look at those two divisions, uh, I just want to explain a few other terms that come up a lot, and maybe some of you haven't encountered them before. So perception and conception. So these are two ways that um, mind works, two different kinds of minds in terms of how they know objects. So a perception, although it's literally, the Tibetan term is a non-conceptual mind, but that's kind of long, so it's nice to just say perception. So a perception or a non-conceptual mind engages with its object directly rather than through the medium of a mental image as does a conception so that'll get more clear when we look at conception um, so examples of perceptions or non-conceptual minds are all our five senses seeing hearing smelling tasting tactile body consciousness. There's also types of mental perception, but uh, for us ordinary beings, those are not uh, things we can be aware of. Like for example, they say that um, when we see an object, then that experience of seeing the object is a perception, direct perception. It's the, my, the eye consciousness is directly uh, experiencing the object that we see. And then shortly after that, we start thinking about it. In case you haven't noticed, <laughs> you know, we start having thoughts about it, associations, mind going blah, 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 and so on. Um, and so that's conception. So mind kind of jumps back and forth between direct perception, directly seeing and hearing things and thinking about them. And it's said that in between having a direct perception of an object and 
thinking about it is a very brief moment. It's so short, we can't notice it. It's yeah, too short to notice. Um, and, and that brief moment, internal moment, um, is a mental direct perception. So we first see an object, have a visual perception of it, and then there's a very brief moment of a mental direct perception of the object, and then conception kicks in, thoughts kick in. Um, so we do have mental direct perceptions, but we don't notice them. Yeah, and another kind of mental direct perception is clairvoyance, or also called super knowledge, like knowing another, being able to see somebody else's mind. These are high uh, achievements uh, that, that come from developing concentration, very good concentration, and then, yeah, you can attain these special kind of powers or super knowledges with your mind. And those are also mental direct perceptions, but probably most of us don't have those experiences. Um, yeah, so for us, perceptions are mainly our five sense perceptions, seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, and touching. And so when we have those experiences, it's said that our mind directly um, engages with the object but that doesn't mean like the Vibhashikas who, who seem to say that mind actually goes out and touches an object, um, but rather um, the mind arises in the aspect of the object. It's like the object casts an image of itself, a reflection of itself to the mind, and then the mind somehow, don't ask me how, but the mind arises or takes on an aspect of that object. So that's how all the non-Vaibhashika schools explain um, how the mind knows objects. So Satrantika so on up to Prasangika, they all say that the mind arises in an aspect of the object. And the object of perception is always impermanent phenomena. So uh, as I mentioned during the meditation, permanent phenomena can't appear to direct perception. Only impermanent phenomena can appear to direct perception. Then the second type of mind is a conception. And conception, or could also be called thought, does not experience its object directly, but via a mental image or uh, what is venerable is conceptual appearance. conceptual appearance. Other translations are generic image or meaning generality. <laughs> the Tibetan term is so simple, chijin, and <laughs> all these different ways of translating it. Um, or is it dunchi? Dunchi, sorry. Um, yeah, so there's this image. I like mental image, it's just kind of simple. Um, an image of the object appearing, like when we think, like I, I said last week, if you think about your mother, then she may be far away or already gone to the next life, but we can still think of her. And there's an image appearing to our mind, an image of our mother. So that's the meaning of a, a mental image. 
and um, and this mental image is called it the appearing object. The next slide we're going to look at different kinds of objects um, to mind, but one type is an appearing object. That's what actually appears to the mind. And um, and a conception is unable to distinguish between the actual object and the mental image of it. So when we think of a, a person or an object, this image of the object appears and the mind actually thinks that image is the actual object, is unable to distinguish between the image and the actual object. And so conceptions are said to be always mistaken. There's this mistaken element because they mistake the image of the object for the actual object. So there's that element of mistake. But that doesn't mean that they're necessarily completely wrong. There's, there's one kind of consciousness um, we'll get to maybe today called wrong consciousness. And that's when the mind is mistaken to its engaged object. This will get more clear when we look at the next slide. But um, conceptions are always mistaken, but they're not always wrong. <laughs> it's, there's different terms in Tibetan, which can be a little confusing. Um, they sound similar, like in English, mistaken and wrong have the same meaning. But in Tibetan, there are two different words and they do have different meanings. Um, so if we look at the next slide, that might become more clear. So there are different kinds of objects uh, of a mind. And I just put two here, but there are also other objects that they, they talk about sometimes. But these are the main ones. So one type of object is called the engaged object. It's the column in the middle. And the engaged object is the actual object the mind is dealing with. So I give the example of yellow, okay, the color yellow. So we can look at yellow, we can also think about yellow, visualize yellow. Um, so we can engage with the color yellow. And then the appearing object, the last column. So the appearing object is the object that appears to the mind, okay? And in the case of perceptions, the engaged object and the appearing object are the same. So the first example of a mind is an eye consciousness perceiving yellow. So when we're looking at yellow, then yellow is both the engaged object, what the mind is engaging with, and it's also the appearing object, okay? so. They're the same. But in the case of conception, like if you close your eyes and think of yellow, visualize yellow, imagine yellow, yellow is still the engaged object. Your mind is engaging with yellow, but the appearing object, when you're just thinking about it or visualizing it, the, it's a mental image or a conceptual appearance of yellow. Okay. not actual yellow, it's just an image of yellow. And the conceptual mind can't tell the difference, is unable to dis differentiate 
yellow, the actual object, and the mental image of yellow. And so in that way, it's said to be mistaken. So all conceptual consciousnesses are mistaken in that way. But they're not all wrong. But some are. Mm -hmm. So as an example of a wrong consciousness, a conceptual consciousness, the last one is a conceptual consciousness thinking that yellow is permanent. Okay, so if somebody has that idea that, I guess we all do in a way, <laughs> we all see things as impermanent, as per thing, we see per impermanent things as permanent, but if you really believed in that, if you really grasped at yellow as permanent, okay, so you, you have that concept, then the engaged object is yellow, and the appearing object in this case would be a mental image of permanent yellow. Okay, so you have this image of yellow as being permanent, unchanging. So that conceptual mind is mistaken and wrong. Okay, all conceptual minds are mistaken, but this one is also wrong. It's completely perverse, completely, yeah, wrong. <laughs> Um, yeah, later, wrong consciousnesses are one type of non-valid mind when we, when we get to the list of the non-valid minds. There's also wrong perceptions. Like, um, if you, like the classic example of rabbit horns, um, somebody sees a rabbit in the distance with the ears sticking up and they, they, uh, they see, apparently, it also, it's not just a conceptual thought that rabbit has horns, but to their mind, it also appears like horns. So um, seeing rabbit horns <laughs> would be um, a, a perception that is wrong, a wrong perception. That's kind of a strange one, probably a, a more one that we might have experienced is a mirage, when you see, um, on the surface of a desert or, or on a highway, on asphalt. Um, the, it looks like water. There's this kind of shimmering appearance um, that's just caused by the sun and the heat and the, on the hot surface, but it really looks like water. You look at that and you could swear it's water. Have you ever had that experience? Mm -hmm. Okay, so that's a wrong perception. Um, there's no water there, but there's this appearance caused by the conditions, and um, it appears like water. So the engaged object in that uh, would be the surface of the mirage. I mean, a, a mirage is an engaged object. Yeah, it is a, an appearance. It is something that appears, um, and the appearing object I think would be um, water. So the engaged object is the mirage, and mm -hmm. the appearing object is water. Any questions so far? Would this the is... mirage be mistaken and wrong? Okay, so in the case of perceptions, um, if a perception is wrong, it's also mistaken. There's a uh, pervasion there. Okay. 
If it's a wrong perception, it's also a mistaken perception. If it's a mistaken perception, it's a wrong perception. So that's the, that's the case for perceptions. But in conceptions, um, it could be mistaken but not wrong. But if it's wrong, it's also mistaken. Okay. <laughs> so this is just kind of background information and because some of these terms come up as we start looking at the uh, different kinds of valid minds and non-valid minds. So the next slide we go into the valid cognizers or valid minds. So um, th this is a very important topic because our goal in our practice is, well one of our goals is to develop a direct realization of emptiness. This is a very important realization that we need to have, and it, and it's a valid mind. You know, direct realization of emptiness is a valid mind, and so it's important to know what is a valid mind, and that's something we have to achieve one of these days. <laughs> um, so. The definition of a valid mind, a valid cognizer, is a new incontrovertible cognizer. So new means it's the first moment of an experience that will probably be followed by several moments. Okay, so when we look at an object, um, we need several moments of continuous perception of that object to be able to really grasp it, to be able to really apprehend it. Um, and only the very first moment in that series of moments of perceiving the object is valid. Um, although there's discussion about this, <laughs> Prasangika doesn't agree, but anyway, this school says, only the first moment is valid. And then the subsequent moments, the later moments, is another kind of mind. Um, so valid, yeah, because they, they the, the reason they give is that the first moment of perceiving or understanding an object does so by its own power. It's, it has its own power, own force to be able to know that object, perceive that object. And then the second moment, third moment, fourth moment, and so on, do not engage with the object under their own power, but they're pulled by that first moment, similar to the train. I like the analogy of a train. The first, well, I don't know if you call it a car, but the locomotive or the engine, you know, the first one, that's the one with the power. And then there's many cars after that, passenger cars or freight cars or whatever. They don't have any power to move by themselves, right? They are pulled because they are attached to the engine. So it's only that first car, the engine, that has the power to move, and the other cars move by the force of it. So in a similar way, the first moment of an experience of an object does so by its own power, and the others are pulled along. So that's why they emphasize the newness And then the second term, incontrovertible, means it's infallible. 
it's it it knows its object correctly and it is also able to bring about an experience of certainty you feel certain that you saw that object or experienced that object and also it also has the meaning of being able to eliminate misconceptions about it you know like sometimes we might see an object and we're not quite sure if, about what we saw so we're left with this uncertainty this doubt did i see this or did i see that was it this or was it that so that would not be a valid mind <laughs> so a valid mind is sure it sees the object perceives the object knows the object with certainty and is able to eliminate misconceptions like i know it was this and not something else that's the meaning of incontrovertible so for example the first moment of seeing a red tulip we have red tulips in the garden right now so that the first moment of seeing that red tulip and you see it correctly you know the, the color and the type of flower and afterwards you are 100 percent sure that you did see a red tulip and not a yellow one and not a you know some other kind of flower okay so you're really 100 percent sure of what it was you saw so we actually have valid cognizers all the time um perceptions with our five senses we see things uh, in a correct way and we are sure about what we see or hear or smell or taste or whatever um, and so afterwards we feel this certainty about it and mm, we, we're not left with doubt so a valid cognizer could be well that's the next point there are two types of valid cognizers. One is valid direct perceivers, and the second is valid inferential cognizers. So inferential cognizers are conceptual minds. So um, I think we can have those as well. well. We'll look at those later, but first we'll look at valid direct perceivers. Um, so, First um, is a definition the, um, under valid direct perceivers. The first bullet point says a direct perceiver is a cognizer that is non-mistaken and free of conceptuality. So that's the definition of just a direct perceiver, not a valid direct perceiver. A direct perceiver um, is a mind that is non-mistaken and free of conceptuality. I mean, that's true for all perceptions. They're all free of conceptuality, but it, but it has to be non-mistaken. Um, so if we have mistaken perceptions, like seeing a mirage as water, that would not be a direct perceiver. So direct perceivers are always non-mistaken. If, if it's a mistaken one, it, it's a wrong consciousness, <laughs> not a direct perceiver. 
Okay, so that's direct perceivers. And then valid direct perceivers. So that has the additional term valid direct perceivers because not all direct perceivers are valid direct perceivers. So a valid direct perceiver is a new incontrovertible cognizer that is free from conceptuality. So for example, the example I just gave of seeing the red tulip in the garden. So you might stand there looking at it, gazing at it for several moments, just admiring its beauty and feeling happy. <laughs> um, so, so there's several moments of that um, perception. And those would be direct perceptions as long as you are not mistaken. You, you know it's a red tulip and not something else. Um, but only the first moment, the initial moment of the perception of seeing the red tulip, mm -hmm. only that one is valid. And this, the second moment, third moment, fourth moment, however many moments are following that, those are no longer valid because they're not new. So according to this school, um, only that first moment is a valid direct perceiver. So there are four types of uh, direct perceivers, valid direct perceivers. And in the text, it goes into definitions of all of these. I'm not going to worry so much about the definition. I'm just going to explain them in hopefully simple English. So the first is self-cognizers. Sometimes they're called um, self-knowers. And uh, this is a controversial topic among the different Buddhist schools. Some um, assert them, some do not. This school, Sutrantika does, and also the Chittamatra does. Abhashika doesn't, Prasangika doesn't. So, <laughs> yeah, we have different views about it. Okay, so a self-cognizer um, is is a is a my. It's a direct. It's a direct perception, and its object is always another mind. So, for example, the example I gave of looking at the red tulip in the garden. So we have an eye consciousness. Uh, visual consciousness, seeing the red tulip, and in simultaneous with that is another consciousness that's looking at the eye consciousness. It doesn't see the tulip, it doesn't see anything else, it only sees the eye consciousness seeing the tulip. <laughs> and yeah, so that's the meaning of a self-cognizer or a self-knower. And, uh, and they say that, yeah, every moment of mind we have um, has a self-cognizer looking at it. And they say those, those schools like Subtrantika who, who do assert self-cognizers, they say it's necessary to be able to remember that we had that experience. Yeah, so we have, to, it's like a, you know, double check <laughs> we we see the flower yes but how do we know how do we remember later that we had that visual consciousness seeing the flower we had this self-cognizer aware of that visual consciousness 
So they say if we didn't have the self-cognizer, we wouldn't be able to remember the experiences that we have. The other schools say, no, you don't need a self-cognizer. Just having the experience itself is enough to be able to remember it. So there's a lot of debate about it. But anyway, I don't think it's something so important. Um, okay, the sense, the second one is sense, um, sense, perceptions, and so these are related to our five senses, seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, and touching, body, sense, power, and so they always arise from three conditions, do you remember what the three conditions are? The object. object. So there's an object that uh, is perceived. Sense faculty or sense power. Yeah, the sense. Yes, sense power or sense faculty. So that's like a subtle kind of form within the eye, the ear, the nose, the tongue, and the body. So it's some kind of subtle form, physical form, um, that enables us to have uh, those different kinds of experiences. And then the third condition is previous, previous moment of mind. Yeah. So when those three things come together, object, sense power, previous moment of mind, then that's how a sense, um, sense perception arises. Mental, so a mental direct perceiver um, arises in dependence on a mental power or mental faculty. And the mental power is the previous moment of mind, not a, a physical form, physical sense power. It's a, just the, the previous moment of mind. And so, like I say, it's hard for us to find examples of these um, because they're, we do have them, but they're too short to notice. And if, unless we have an experience of clairvoyance, then yeah, we just have to trust that other people have those kinds of experiences. We will one day too. Um, yeah. And then the, the fourth is a yogic uh, valid direct perceiver. And so these are only in the minds of aryas, those who directly realized uh, selflessness. And um, the object of a yogic direct perceiver could be either subtle impermanence, the very mm -hmm. subtle momentary change of things, or selflessness, absence of a, well, there's two kinds of selflessness in this school, of course, the, abs the emptiness of a permanent unitary independent self, and then the subtle one, the emptiness of a self-sufficient, substantially existent self. So it's the same as Vibhashika, those two levels of selflessness of persons. So when one has a direct, realization of one of those objects and that's a yogic uh, direct perceiver and only the first moment would be the valid 
uh, yogic direct perceiver in the the later moments in the in that chain of realization uh, would be another kind of mind it's called subsequent cognizer and it says that the um, the yogic direct perceiver um, arises in dependence on a union of calm abiding and special insight. So that's like the, in place of a sense power, <laughs> that's like the thing that um, engenders or gives rise to a yogic. So yeah, you have to be quite a highly accomplished person to have um, both calm abiding and special insight. And also a yogic direct perceiver is also a mental direct perceiver. But it's a spe special kind of mental direct perceiver. So in the next slide, um, I just made this drawing or graph just to, because it's a little confusing, these different terms. Um, so the big circle, the red circle, is just perceivers or perception. That in, so all perceptions are included in that, both correct ones and wrong ones, any kind of perception, like seeing, hearing, smelling, and so on and so on. Um, so all perceptions. And then within perceptions or perceivers, there's a smaller subset of direct perceivers. And do you remember the criteria of being a direct perceiver? Non-mistaken. Has to be non-mistaken, okay. So what would be an example of something that is a perceiver but not a direct perceiver? Something that's in the red circle but not the green circle. Seeing the scarecrow and thinking it's a person. Yeah. Mistaking a scarecrow for a person. Mirage. Seeing a mirage as water. What about like so, seeing a person but not being sure about which person it is? Well, as long as you know it's a person okay. and not a tree. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, yeah, it's, um, you probably do have some kind of correctness in your perception, even if you don't know which person it is. Yeah. Being but a if you snake. Huh? Seeing the robe as a snake. Yeah. So that's another one. Um, seeing a piece of rope on the ground that's got stripes on it and it's in a certain shape and thinking it's a snake. How about hearing the, the chanting in the apple trees of Lama Zopin thinking that he's standing under the tree? Huh? So when we did the chanting, Lama's over in the apple tree flesh in the in the in the in the, the little fish, the little the, the little tape recorder when the bears were at the trees. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh. But we, you know, you could think that there was somebody down there when in fact there wasn't. Is that still uh, a perceiver, but not a direct perceiver? Yeah, I suppose if you heard the 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 recorder, the the chanting, and thought there was a real person there mm -hmm. chanting. Lama Zopa's down there, mm -hmm. doing chanting. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Or maybe an echo in a canon, canyon. Maybe yeah, an echo, echo is, is echo is an, a, another example that's often given. Um, 
if you talk or yell and yeah there's this echo coming back and you think it's somebody else you know you don't realize it's your own voice but you think oh there's somebody else over there yelling back at me that would be a, a mistaken perception a thought hmm? a concept no because here we're just talking about perceptions these are just perceptions not concepts well again there's the bigger category of perceivers or perceptions and that includes all perceptions both wrong and correct and then the smaller circle of direct perceivers direct perceivers are by definition non-mistaken so they they can't be wrong like thinking an echo is another person and so on so all perceivers are necessarily non-conceptual yeah, all perceivers are non-conceptual. That's that's the term. The term in Tibetan for this is actually, oh no, it's not. Yes, there is one term that um, is non-conceptual, non-conceptual minds. The, the term for perception uh, or direct perceiver is actually munsum, which has nothing to do with mind. I don't know how they. Anyway, <laughs> um, but yeah, it is. Some, they are sometimes called non non-conceptual minds. So then the smaller circle, the purple one, these are valid direct perceivers. So that's a smaller subset of perceivers that has to be the first moment, the new initial first moment of a perception. And again, it has to be correct and not mistaken. For a yogic valid direct perceiver, is the second moment of that a subsequent cognizer mm -hmm. or all of it? Okay, so even even yogic direct, valid direct perceivers was only the first moment that's mm -hmm. yeah. According to this school, mm -hmm. but not Prasangika. Even um, perceivers also direct perceivers. Sorry. Even perceivers seeing the rope as a. They are perceivers, you but are not a direct perceiver. But you are a deceptive mind. But you are is a direct perceiver. No, the term direct perceiver only refers to those that are non-mistaken. You have to be non. That was the definition in the definition of a direct perceiver. It's it's a non-mistaken mind. Okay. So if a perceiver is mistaken, we have a wrong perception of something. It's a perception. It's in the big red circle, but it's not a direct perceiver. So the engaged object is a rope, but the appearing object is a snake. The engaged object, rope, and appearing object, snake. Yeah. I think you so. smell cookies, but it's granola. It's <laughs> <laughs> just a perceiver. <laughs> the engaged object is granola, but uh, appearing object is cookies, or the other way around, whatever. That's not too far off. Well, <laughs> hmm. <laughs> the ingredients are pretty much the same. It's just a different form, all spread out on a tray. Rather than. What about like a faulty memory? So you're you're Sorry? so sure you're so a faulty memory. So you're so sure you have this thought that something happened, but it actually you're totally remembering wrong. Well, memory is not perception. Memory is conception. Um, 
But if you have a false memory, then it could be because you had a false perception to start with. You know, if you mis misperceived something and then later on you think, I did see such and such, but actually it was wrong. So, yeah, I, I think faulty memories. I mean, I suppose you may have had a correct perception to start with, but then over time, you know, you're thinking about it and you distorting it, and then you end up with the wrong perception, <laughs> with the wrong memory, even though the initial experience was correct. It's possible. But, yeah, I think we do have wrong memories. But, yeah, memories are conceptual minds rather than perceptions. Okay, let's see. Oh, we can go a little further. Okay, um, so now valid inferential cognizers. So this is the second type of valid mind. And um, the definition is a new and incontrovertible determinative cognizer um, that arises in dependence upon a correct sign, its basis. So the word determinative, um, it just means it's a conception. It's, it's, it's a thinking mind, a mind that thinks this is this, this is that. So they have this rather complicated term for it. Um, so new and incontrovertible is as before. It's like the first moment and it is correct and with certainty able to eliminate misconceptions, but it's conceptual rather than perception. And it arises in dependence on a correct sign. Another word for sign is reason. So there's a reason that gives rise to uh, this kind of mind. Um, and so I think some of you did the debate class and, you know, about signs and the process of, um, you know, using a sign in order to generate a, um, realization, like the classic example, sound is impermanent because it's a product. The product in that case is the sign. The sign or reason in dependence upon which you realize that sound is impermanent. Or to use an uh, example from Prasangika, um, the I is empty of inherent existence because of being a dependent arising. Okay, so dependent arising is the sign or the reason used to realize the emptiness of the I, the I being empty of inherent existence. So these are, yeah, we, we to, get, to realize um, phenomena like impermanence, subtle impermanence, selflessness, emptiness, and so on, um, we... Um, we can't perceive these directly. These are not accessible to our direct perception. They're hidden phenomena. And so the only way we can get at them 
know them, realize them, is by using a sign. And we do have similar experiences in our everyday life. Like the classic example of seeing smoke and inferring there's a fire. So when we look at Ananda early in the morning on a cold day and we see smoke coming out of the chimney, we're outside, but we can infer that Hannibal Sanke has started a fire in the furnace. <laughs> There's a fire in the furnace, even though it's, we can't see it directly at that moment, but we can infer it. I was thinking another example, uh, if we see we're walking in the woods, especially in the winter, and we see uh, footprints of animals, you know, deer, moose, um, whatever, what else do we see? Cougar. Rabbits. Rabbits, yes. Rabbits, turkeys. So seeing the, the print in the snow, then we can infer that type of animal walked through there not too long before. And yeah, I mean, uh, a lot of people use this kind of uh, means of knowing things like detectives and police when they're trying to find a, a criminal, somebody who committed a crime, or hunters and trackers, okay? So they use signs to find whatever it is they're looking for. So yeah, we do have kind of everyday experiences of this. And um, so inference, like I say, is, is used to, to know hidden phenomena. So there's three kinds of phenomena. There's manifest. Manifest phenomena are things that we can know just with our ordinary awareness, like with our direct perception. We can know a table just by looking at the table. Yeah, so all, I think most material things, impermanent things, well, not mind maybe, mind's more difficult, but yeah, form, physical things, we can just know them with our senses. So those are manifest phenomena. But then hidden phenomena, hidden phenomena are things that are not accessible to our senses. We can't just know them with direct perception. We need um, inference. We need to know them by means of some kind of sign. So there's three kinds. Um, yeah, we have only one minute left. But I think of the three kinds, the one that's most relevant for us is the first one, inferential cognizer by the power of the fact. So that's the kind of inference we gain to realize things like subtle impermanence and selflessness. Um, and so it, we use a type of reason or sign that's called a correct sign of the power of the fact. And it seems that we're establishing something that is a fact about the object, that abides in the object. So the example, classic example, sound is impermanent because it is a product. So um, product is something that's a fact about um, sound. It is produced. It's dependent on causes and conditions. 
So even though we cannot see subtle impermanence with our senses, we can come to know it by, by understanding that it's produced by causes and conditions and whatever is produced by causes and conditions is impermanent. I mean, we have to go through a number of steps to actually get that realization, but yeah, we're just, we're just realizing something that is already there in the object, like a fact about the object. Then were all manifest phenomena are known through perception, whereas the slightly hidden phenomena are known through inferential cognition. Slightly hidden, and then there's also very hidden phenomena. <laughs> are also known through inferential. Yeah, the third one, the third type of inference, inferential cognizer through belief is uh, is for knowing very hidden phenomena. We'll 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 talk about that next next time. We don't have time today, but yeah. Can we know manifest phenomena through inference? Can we know manifest phenomena through inference? I don't. I mean, you don't need to. I mean, I guess it also depends on situation. Like fire is a manifest phenomena right? We can see fire with our senses. But if we're outside of Ananda, and the fire is down in the basement inside the furnace, in that situation, we can't see it. It's not accessible to our senses. But we can know it, we can know the presence of the fire, the existence of the fire by the smoke. So yes, we can use uh, inference to know a manifest phenomena that in in that situation is hidden from us. Okay, so we'll stop there. Thank you. And we'll dedicate the merit. Due to this merit, may we soon attain the awakened state of Guru Buddha that we may be able to liberate all sentient beings <coughs> from their suffering. May the precious Bodhi mind not yet born arise and grow. May that born have no decline, but increase forevermore.